Hey, my name's Adam. I'm the uh, missions and mobilization pastor here at Geyer Springs. I also kind of partner with this service as well as the Connections pastor. And today we're going to continue our series through Genesis. And today we're going to find the bad news chapter, which we just read. Thank you, Courtney, for reading that. Uh, but I want to I want to remember back. I want to remember back to the last couple of weeks, Genesis chapter one and two. So if you haven't been here, if this is your first time here, welcome. Uh, let me catch you up. So in the last couple of chapters of Genesis, which means the beginnings, right? Uh, God creates and it's good. In fact, he creates in six days everything. And everything that we know and everything that we see has come from God literally just speaking and it coming to being. And after he creates each day, he stops and he goes, man, it's good. And then we see God creates man and woman in his image, and he stops and he says, it's very good. All right, so some, some really cool things happening here. Uh, God's creating all the things that we love and we see that we enjoy, and then we also see that he creates man, but he also creates them on purpose. He gives them something to do. In fact, he says, hey, this earth, it's underneath your dominion. I want you to be fruitful and to multiply and know that everything that you're doing is going to have purpose. It's going to bring you joy and it's good. In fact, it's very good. And so we see this new heaven and this new earth, this new garden. We see these newlyweds, total innocence, total paradise. It's awesome. This is incredible. And so when we look at Genesis chapter 1 and chapter 2, man, this is, this is awesomeness. This is exactly what we would say, this is paradise. And so the only commands that are given in this are really just to, to have dominion, right? to subdue the earth, to be fruitful and to multiply. And then notice he blesses them. He says, hey, everything in the garden is yours. In fact, anything that has fruit on it, eat it. Anything that, that you see, hey, you can name, you can make that flourish, you can make that prosper. And notice that it's not going to be resistant to you, it's going to yield to you. It's going to be incredible. And so the only thing that we see that is a restriction is this one tree, the tree of the knowledge of good and evil. God says to man, don't eat of that. Everything else, fair game. So teenagers in the room, your parents are going out for the weekend they turn and look at you and say, hey, you know, we have great wealth. And the mansion that we live in today has just so many things. In fact, you know the Ferrari that's in the garage. Guess what? It's yours for the weekend. Hey, you know what? That's the, all the rooms and the pool and the pool house and all the things, the amenities that's in our mansion. It's yours. Teenagers in the room, you're like, okay. And you're terminal, I bet, right? This is great. We're going to have a fun time. The only thing that your parents say to you before they leave is, says, hey, you know, in the kitchen, though, underneath the sink, there's those Tide Pods. Don't eat those. And then they turn around and they walk out and you have the whole house to yourself. Now, no teenager in here would say, you know what, I'm going to squander this weekend and I'm going to go look at those Tide Pods and take and eat because what would happen? You would surely, you would die. Thank you for teenagers that are participating. This is exactly kind of the picture that we're painting here in Genesis chapter 3. It's a bad news chapter, but as we read it today, I want to put new eyes to it. You may have seen this before, you may have read this before, but I want to put new eyes to it. And then here's what I'm going to ask you to do. I want you to place yourself in the garden, and I want you to see from the perspective of what is happening, God's response, and then where we move forward through this. Okay, so let's, let's go. Let's go back to Genesis chapter 3. We just read it. 
bit, but let's pick up in verse chapter one. Now the serpent was more crafty than any other beast. Now this is the first time that we see this creature. What do we know about this creature? Well, we know that it's crafty, it's been created, and then also it can talk. And nobody's weirded out by this, right? This is just normal things that are going on. But we also see that this creature is in rebellion. And so verse 2 says this, or I'm sorry, continuing in verse 1. He said to the woman, this, this serpent, did God actually say you shall not eat of any tree in the garden? And the woman said to the serpent, notice she's not taken back, she's reply, replying and responding, we may eat of the fruit of the trees in the garden, but God said, you shall not eat of the fruit of the tree that's in the midst of the garden, neither shall you touch it, lest you die. But the serpent said to the woman, you shall not surely die, for God knows that when you eat of it, your eyes will be opened and you will be like God, knowing both good and evil. So when the woman saw that the tree was good for food and that it was a delight to the eyes and that the tree was to be desired to make one wise, she took of its fruit and ate. And she also gave some to her husband who was with her and he ate. And the eyes of both were open and they knew that they were naked. Pause. Okay. As we start from this point on, we're going to start to see what we call the fall. And it's really just the big Oops, right? We, we know that this is not what God intended. This is not where we wanted to go. But somehow, some way, this serpent who is in rebellion is going to get us there. And so the way that this happens is what we call temptation. And so we're going we're gonna to pause here and we're just going to watch how this happens because here's how we're going to get to the tide, ball, tide pod and then here's how we're going to eat it. Here's how we're going to take this and then, and then really consume it and it's going to lead to death. Because again, no teenager in the room would say, yes, that's exactly what we're going to No, we're going to the pool. We're going to celebrate, right? But here we are. They got the keys to the kingdom and then they squander it on the fruit which they never should have eaten. So how does this happen? Let's look at temptation. So temptation always begins with questioning God. That's the root of idolatry. Did God really say was the question. And so as immediately as this enters the ears, the question begins to go, hey, is God withholding from me? Did God really say that you can't have this? And so our minds and our hearts, especially this side of Eden, we go, huh, let's be a little critical. Let's try to think about this in a new way. You know what? God did say that. Why did he say that? And so we just kind of take this down this, this road. It kind of begins to snowball. And so temptation always begins with questioning God. Number two, temptation always promises high. So as we look at this, we begin to see that she's, she's being drawn in. And notice that she's not alone. In fact, when we see the word you here, the Hebrew text actually has a plural sense of that. And we down in the South, we call that y'all, right? So when we see this text, we understand that, that the serpent isn't just talking to Eve, but he's actually talking to both Adam and Eve. Adam just is not saying anything. So we see this passive male with his new bride, and they're walking in the garden, but, but this serpent who is in rebellion is drawing them closer to something that, that they're questioning as well. 
And so the promise is that God will, will give you what he's been withholding from you, which is knowing both good and evil. Guess what? You'll be like God. So not only are we questioning God now, we're actually, we're seeing a promise that if we take this and we eat this, we'll be like God. It's ironic because we remember that when, when God creates man in his image, he creates him in his likeness. And so they're already like God, but the serpent is now tempting them to believe that God is withholding something that would make them extra God-like. It's the de-godding of God, as it's said. Like we take away who he is and how sovereign he is and all the things that he's done for us. And we begin to think, you know what? Maybe I could do it better. Or maybe he's withholding. Or maybe he just doesn't see it the way that I see it. And so this temptation takes another step. Temptation always lies and presents half-truths. Notice the text continues to go on. It says, you will surely not die. That's a lie, right? So God's word is not true anymore. We're now questioning him. We now are being brought to the point of where we're like, maybe we can do it better. Maybe he is withholding. And then maybe he's just flat out lying to us. We're not going to surely die. And so the serpent begins to draw them in closer with this temptation and presents even some half-truths as well. You'll be like God even more. The last thing that temptation does is it draws us in, and it's almost like a lure. Some of y'all in the room, you, you like to hunt, you like to fish, and the thing that you're after, you want to try to bait them in, or you want to try to set up the perfect scenario where you can take a trap, or you can take your weapon, and you can kill what's in your crosshairs. In the same way, we see temptation does this. And James is a great depiction of this, of how temptation always takes steps closer and closer and closer to the last step, which takes your life. And this serpent is doing that. It's drawing Eve and Adam closer and closer and closer to this tree. And so now what happens? They see the tree. And not only do they see the tree, they desire the tree. Not only do they desire the tree, they see that it promises high. Hey, we can be like God. Not only that, they begin to reach out and the proximity of the tree is now at reach and they take it and they eat it and they consume it. And we know from this point on, everything breaks. How do we know that? Well, the text goes on and it says this. It says, their eyes were both open and they knew that they were naked. And they sewed fig leaves together and made themselves loincloths. And they heard the sound of the Lord God walking in the garden in the cool of the day. And, they, and the man and the wife, they hid themselves from the presence of the Lord among the trees of the garden. Have you ever broken something? you ever... You ever had an incident where something has broken? This is exactly what happens. If it's something new, right, and you break it, your eyes begin to open, you try to cover it up, and then you hide from it. A great illustration of this is when I was a kid, me and my sister, we were playing in the house, and we had a hacky sack. Ever, anybody ever played with the hacky sack? There's a right way to play with the hacky sack. There's a wrong way to play with the hacky sack, especially in the house. We were playing with the hacky sack 
the wrong way. In fact, it came to the point where my sister, again, I'm just going to put blame on her, right? Because I have the mic. This is how we do it. Uh, She has the hacky sack and there's a wasp in the house. She hates wasps. She hates insects altogether, but the, especially the wasp. And this wasp was, was somewhere close, and it was kind of hovering, and she's screaming. She grabs the hacky sack, and she hurls the hacky sack at the wasp, which, again, not a great idea. It continues to go about 90 miles per hour straight into a window, and the window breaks. In fact, there's two little layers to the window. In fact, the first layer would break, and it would settle in there. The hacksack would settle in there. And you know what we did? We opened our eyes. We're like, oh, my goodness, that just happened. What are we going to do? i tell you what we're going to do. We're going to close the lampshade, right, or we're going to close the, uh, the shades on the window, and then we're going to walk away, and nobody's going to talk about this. Fun fact. We did not talk about it for so long. We forgot about it. And it wasn't until years later that we see our parents discover the hacky sack. You know what they're asking? What in the world is this hacky sack doing in the middle of the window? And we both look at each other like, oh, oh yeah, let me share you a story about what happened. But this is exactly what we do when we break things, when things are broken. So here's this newlywed couple who together in the garden, right, paradise, everything's for them. They're confronted with this temptation, and they take it, and then they eat this fruit, and then immediately their eyes are open, and they look at each other, and they realize something's wrong. And so what do they do? They try to fix it themselves. And what they do is not sufficient. And in fact, what they do is absolutely absurd because They go and they hide in the garden behind some trees that the Lord God had just made days prior. He made everything. He spoke it into existence. And so they're they're cowering in the garden. They're hiding with some things that they had just sown on themselves. It's not sufficient. And you know what the greatest part of the story is? God came looking for them. Let me just pause here for a little bit. Like, think about the implications of this. Man who is wrong who is hiding, is not seeking after God. And God, in love and grace and mercy, comes looking for them. It's a beautiful picture. So the story goes on. It says, it says uh, where are you? But the Lord God called out to them among the trees and says, where are you? And he said, have you eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you not to eat? And the man said, remember newlyweds here, The woman you gave me to be with, she gave me the fruit, and I ate of the tree. That's how it went down. Good move or bad mood, husbands? Terrible move, right? So not only were they hiding, and not only were they just kind of like in the middle of their sin, and things were messed up already, he made things worse. He opened his mouth when he should have opened his mouth prior to that and said, hey, 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 God already said, We don't eat of this tree. But now he decides to speak because God came looking after him, right? Because he's the leader of this household. And so God comes looking for him. And when it's his turn to speak, what does he do? He goes, woman. When in chapter two, we had the first poetry in the Bible and it's him kind of like repping some lines about how great she is. And then now we're broken and it's, she did it. Story goes on. So what is this you've done? 
He says it was her. The second thing that we see is that she goes, well, the serpent deceived me, and then I ate. All right, so, so she goes, it was the serpent. So what are we seeing here? We're seeing this kind of this blame game going on. And so really this, this cycle is continuing to spiral down. No one's taking ownership. And the Lord God says this in verse 14, says to the serpent, because you have done this, cursed are you above all the livestock and above all the beasts of the field. On your belly you shall go and you shall eat all the days of your life. Or the dust you shall eat all the days of your life. I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and, she, and, he, uh, and you shall bruise his heel. We're going to come back and we're going to talk about that. There's a couple of things that are going to happen in the next few verses. There's going to be curses. There's also going to be separation. There's two curses. The first curse goes against the serpent. Interestingly enough, if, if you think about all the curses that are in here, none of this goes towards the people. None of this goes towards God's creation in his image. It's going to go towards the things that he has created that don't bear his image. And so the, the serpent is going to be cursed. The second thing that's going to be cursed is actually uh, right down in Adam's section. It says, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and you've eaten the tree of which I commanded you not to, you shall not eat of it. Uh, cursed is the ground because of it. So what ends up happening in this chapter is two things. The curse of Satan, a promise to which to come, a curse of the ground, and something that we have to live in. And so one of the things that we see from paradise to where we're in this fallen nature has everything to do with where we were supposed to be purposefully, what was going to bring us joy. But since now we've taken the Tide Pod and we've eaten it, everything has become sour and everything becomes resistant. And so God has placed us on this earth now and everything around us is going to be difficult. And so when we read chapter 1 and 2, we're like, man, that's, that's paradise. That's heaven. How do we get back there? And let me tell you right now, every bit of the world today is trying to figure that out. So everything's broken, everything's messed up, and the solution that we try to find is how do we get back to paradise? How do we fix it ourselves? If you're to walk into Barnes & Noble today, if you're to walk into any bookstore today, you're going to find that there's categories in there. Some of y'all are like, man, I've never been to the bookstore or I've never been in the library. There's like sections of books. And, and when you go in there, the largest section of books in there is called the self-help section. And what do you think that's full of? Well, self-help. How do I get better? I'm the worst. How do I get better in business? How do I get better in discipline? How do I stop doing this? How can I become healthy? How can I become a better parent? How can I become a better student? The list goes on and on and on and on because something in us is broken and something's wrong with me. It needs to be fixed. How do I get back to chapter one and two? In cycles after cycles and after cycles again, we do this to ourselves and we have a name for that. You know what it is? Religion. It's religion. What can I do to fix myself so that I can be okay with what comes after? What can I do to make a better me now so that I'm okay with me now? What can I do to fix the situation so that everybody knows that I'm okay? It's religion. It's interesting. 
that ever since Genesis chapter 3, the chase is always, how do we get back? How do we get back? How do we get back? Well, here's how we're going to land today's discussion, because chapter 3 may be the bad news chapter, but we know that good news comes. It continues on. Notice what it says in, uh, in, in verse 15. It says, I will put enmity between you and the woman and between your offspring and her offspring. He shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. To the woman, he said, I will surely multiply your pain and childbearing. In pain, you shall bring forth children. Your desire shall be contrary to your husband and he shall rule over you. And to Adam, he said, because you have listened to the voice of your wife and have eaten of the tree of which I've commanded you, you shall not eat of it. Curses the ground because of you. In pain of it, you shall eat of all the days of your life. Thorns and thistles it shall bring forth to you, and you shall eat of the plants of the field. By the sweat of your face, you shall eat bread till you return to the ground. For, of it, for out of it, you were taken. For, for you are dust, and dust you shall return. Verse 20 begins this, this cycle, this, this new cycle. And then the man called his wife Eve because she was the mother of all living. And the Lord God made for Adam his new garments. So Adam and Eve are going to get these new outfits. And, and you're going to see that they're made out of skins and, and they're, they're clothing them. And the Lord God said in verse 22, Behold, the man has become like one of us, knowing both good and evil. Now lest he reach out his hand and take also the tree of life and eat and live forever. Therefore, the Lord God sent them out of the garden of Eden to work from the ground in which he was taken. And he drove them out east of the garden. It's interesting as we look at these two verses, verses 21 and we see in verse 15, there's two things that are happening here. So God sees that the man and the woman have fallen, that they're hiding. He comes and seeks them out, and then he has a word for them. He says, cursed is the serpent, and then cursed is the ground. And before you leave Eden, know that it's going to be difficult. It's going to be rough. It's not what I had promised for you, but notice something that's going to happen. I'm going to clothe you because your fig leaves, they weren't sufficient. They're not covering anything. I'm going to clothe you, and here's how I'm going to do it. I'm going to take the first animal sacrifice. Think about skin. How do you get skin? Well, something has to die. He's going to sacrifice the first animal. No death yet, no physical death yet here on earth. The first sacrifice is going to be made on behalf of man that's in his image so that he could cover up that which is broken. And then he says this, I will promise that even this is that it's not sufficient enough. I will promise that one day all of this will be made right. Not to get back to Eden, not to get back to Genesis chapter 1 and 2 because you're out, but I will promise a way through it. If you will go with me to 1 Peter chapter 2, I want to show you something really interesting. 1 Peter chapter 2. Verses 22 through 24. Many years later from this point, we're going to see God himself take upon flesh 
And Philippians would say that he would humble himself to do so. So God himself is now going to become the image of which he's created in the flesh. His name is Jesus. And as he lives, Jesus is going to be tempted in the same way that Adam and Eve were tempted. He's going to be brought close to things, promised high of things. It's going to be one of those things that as he's near it, it can be something he can attain, but he's going to resist it. He's not going to fall into temptation ever in his life. And so he's going to be the spotless lamb, as the Bible would say, the spotless sacrifice that would ultimately come so that God can restore relationships with him once again, like they were back in Genesis chapter 1 and 2. How does this happen? First Peter chapter 2, verse 22. He, this is Jesus, committed no sin, neither was deceit found in his mouth. When he was reviled, he did not revile in return. When he suffered, he did not threaten, but continued entrusting himself to him who judges justly. He himself bore our sins in his body on the tree that we might die to sin and live to righteousness. By his wounds you have been healed. For you were straying like sheep, but have now returned to the shepherd and the overseer of your souls. It talks about this tree that, that he would die upon. And I want to remind you, Back in Genesis chapter 3, the tree that which we took, that we ate, that we wanted and that we desired, that we fell into, there's a new tree that would come. And on this tree, this Jesus who has never sinned, who is spotless, who is innocent, who is pure, is now going to give his life up for ransom so that those who are separated from him, which is all of us, may attain through him, not going back, but through him, salvation. It's a beautiful, beautiful picture when we stop and we think that as this happens, God was thinking back in Genesis chapter 3 about his son that would come so that we might be saved. So God's great love and his great mercy and his grace that just comes through Jesus is lavished upon on us by one way. Him dying. So although Jesus never took of the tree and ate it, he would give his life over for those who did. If I was to ask you to raise your hand in this room of those in here who are sinners, every single one of us would raise our hand because we've all fallen short. The standard of what innocence is is this way. If you were to ask your mother or your father or your brother or your sister, your spouse, to watch your thoughts 100% of the time, like it was on YouTube and you were streaming it in, we would all find ourselves ashamed. We would all find ourselves a little cringy. And in knowing so, that's exactly the amount of righteousness we have to bring to the table. It's none. None of us are. But as we remember 1 Peter chapter 2, it talks about as God judges justly, we deserve death, but Jesus offers up his life so that we might have new life. The tree of which we ate of brought death. The tree of which he 
offers us, the, the body of which he offers us is life. And today as we close, as you walked in, you probably noticed this is a, this is a cup full of juice. And on the top of it, it's a little different, right? It's got this bread. And as we think about this, I'm going to take us back to what Jesus was doing on the cross and what he was fulfilling through Genesis chapter 3. On the cross, it said this, back in Genesis chapter 3, that he shall bruise your head and you shall bruise his heel. That Satan would take the life of Jesus by bruising his heel, meaning that the strike would hit him and that he would die. But in this process of this happening, he shall crush the serpent's head. What does that mean? Simply put, that death would be defeated, that it would have no more sting, that Christ's death would be sufficient for salvation. And even though it looked grim, on the third day, Jesus would rise from the grave and that we would have victory through him. And we as a church, if you are a Christian in here, we remember that by taking his body and his blood, which is broken for us, that is a new covenant by him. That's again, newness, new heaven and new hurt that will come. This this heaven, this paradise to come, we remember that all of that is made possible not by going back and trying to fix things, but through Jesus. So during our time of invitation today, I'm going to ask you to do something. Wherever you're at, whatever you're walking through, whatever your relationship with Jesus looks like, I'm going to ask you to respond in remembering that. Christians in here, we take Jesus' body and we consume it, as he says in Scripture, and it's not his physical body, right? We remember this in symbolic nature by him dying on the cross. And then also the blood of which that was spilled out is the juice, right? And he does this with his disciples. And so in Matthew chapter 26, he says this. He says, take, eat, this is my body. And he took the cup, and when he had given thanks, he gave it to them, saying, drink it, all of you, for this is my blood, which is the new covenant that's poured out for many. So during this time of invitation, I'm going to let you wait, evaluate your relationship with the Lord, and ask yourself, am I living in sin that is underneath the umbrella of Adam and Eve, right? The temptation and the religion that's coming back to get back to that? Or am I living in grace that's been offered through Jesus? And if the answer is, man, I've never given my life over to Christ. If I've never given my life over true relationship with Jesus, today is the day. Stop trying to make yourself better. Stop trying to fix the situation. Stop trying to self-help. Give your life over to Christ. If you're in here today and you're like, man, I'm, I've been just bombarded by all the things that life has to offer or all the things that, that conflict has brought through the curse and the fall of, of man, like, man, thorns and thistles, yes, I've got them. Like work is, is terrible. Like my life is full of just drama. Obstacles and relationships, man, they're, they're at ends. Today, man, maybe it's just the response of giving it over to Christ and saying, you are sufficient. You're enough. Maybe it's just persevering and knowing that every good gift comes from God and that resting in salvation is enough, that even if the situation doesn't get better, you have Jesus and it's plenty. Whatever God is just putting on your heart to respond to today, I pray that you would do that. And when you are ready and when you are willing, 
to respond with the bread and with the juice and in remembrance of what he's done on the cross and then through the, the powerful resurrection, would you take communion? And fathers, if that's doing that with your family and leading them through that, I encourage that. If it's you just kind of waiting and responding in the invitation that you need to move forward in, I encourage that as well. But whatever God is calling you to do, respond today in obedience.